Or we are back, having followed the yellow brick road from, I guess you'd say, 9-11 and the first Bush administration up till 2021, 20 years later, and the Biden administration, wherein, notes The Week magazine, Republican officials allied with Donald Trump pushed forward this week with 2020 election audits in Texas, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin in the wake of a recount in Arizona that was financed and conducted by Trump backers. Oh, by the way, it concluded that Joe Biden legitimately won the state. Noted the magazine after months-long audit that was roundly lambasted by election experts as biased and inept, the security outfit Cyber Ninjas issued a report saying, what do you know, Biden had beat Trump by 45,469 votes in Maricopa County, which, wouldn't you know, it was 360 more than the certified count. These findings refuted claims by Trump and supporters that he was the victim of voter fraud and improper counting in Arizona and elsewhere. But wouldn't you know it, in the, <laughs> directly in the wake of this, they're going to do it in three other states. Evidently, what's going on in Texas dates back to um, a phone call from Donald Trump to Texas Governor Greg Abbott hours after the election. The Texas Secretary of State has announced that there will be a comprehensive forensic audit of the election. As vote reviews are being pursued by in Pennsylvania, where the Republican legislator, where vote reviews were being pursued in Pennsylvania, where Republican legislators have subpoenaed personal information for the state's nine million voters. <laughs> sure, let's just let's just dragnet nine million voters worth of data and see if we can find some reason to say that he didn't win Pennsylvania. And in Wisconsin where after public pressure from Trump, the Republican Speaker of the State Assembly drafted a conservative former state Supreme Court justice to conduct an investigation there. And then, of course, if you were watching what happened on January 6th, and we hope you were, it turned out this correspondent was, you'll have noticed that some odd things took place in the nation's capital as a result of a rally being directed by Donald Trump and family and a few allies that directly led to an attack on the nation's capital, wherein the procedures were underway to certify the electors, which officially make you the president. This led to a putsch, an attempt to overthrow the government of the United States. And yeah, I'll stand by that statement. Writing about all of this in NewRepublic.com, Matt Ford asked, how close did the America come to a constitutional collapse on January 6th? Closer than we knew, he said. At the time, Donald Trump's calls for Vice President Mike Pence to intervene to block the certification of Joe Biden's sizable election victory were dismissed as the ravings of a desperate wannabe dictator. But last week, a disturbing memo became public. Trump lawyer John Eastman laid out a six-step plan for Trump through which Pence could use his ceremonial power as president of the Senate to unilaterally reject the electoral votes of seven, quote, disputed, unquote, states and declared Trump re-elected. Mike Pence ultimately rebuffed Trump's pleas, but only, this is a shock, only after former Vice President Dan Quayle adamantly advised him that he had no such constitutional authority. Thank you, Dan Quayle. Looks as though Danny Quayle was absolutely right that the ceremonial powers of the Vice President could not could not be transferred into decertifying the national election. Writing in the Washington Post, Jennifer Rubin said the Eastman memo is downright chilling. Even includes a plan to follow if the Democrats refuse to accept Pence's declaration, the disputed election would then be thrown into a House vote, something we talked about here in Radio Parallax, in which Republicans, 
who held a majority in 26 of the 50 state delegations, could reinstall Trump. Noted Rubin, behind what looked like the impulsive actions of one unhinged egomaniac, it seems there was a detailed, wide-ranging, and multi-level plan to stage a coup. Writing in Politico.com, Zach Stanton weighed in with, no wonder Republicans want no investigation of January 6th or Trump's role in the coup attempt. For many in the magified GOP, January 6th was a dress rehearsal for 2024, and they're already ensuring that Republicans will win. This leads us to what Robert Kagan had to say in the Washington Post, which is that we're headed into the greatest political and constitutional crisis since the Civil War. In 2024, Donald Trump will again be the GOP's nominee for president if he wants it and remains healthy. If Republicans also retake the House and perhaps the Senate in 2022, Trump will wage a 2024 campaign knowing that there are loyalists already in place, ready and willing to, quote, ensure his victory by whatever means are necessary. And we're going to quote from that piece in the Washington Post shortly, but in the Georgia Recorder, Jay Bookman said the Eastman memo may feel like a footnote to the storm of the Trump presidency, but it actually tells us where we are right now. In the eye of the hurricane, the deceiving pause before the storm resumes. Oh, that piece by Joanna Weiss in Politico.com mentioned the Help America Vote Act put forward by the Bush administration, how we were going to supposedly fix the problems that they, they said had to do with, like, you know, the counting of chads in, in Florida and how we needed to get a better system than that. And, you know, the electronic voting machines were the way out. Well, as Greg Palace pointed out back in the day, you know, when George W. Bush wants to help you vote better, you know, you, you've, got, you've got some problems. These problems are only worse now. 20 years later, we would note that Representative Madison Cawthorn, Republican of North Carolina, threatened that conservatives would engage in political violence this week if states failed to pass more election security laws. This took place a couple weeks back. Speaking at the Macon County GOP headquarters, Cawthorn said, if our election systems continue to be rigged and continue to be stolen, then it's going to lead to one place, and it's bloodshed. After signing off a shotgun that was being raffled off, how nice, Cawthorn discussed the possibility of defending, quote, our liberty at all costs, end quote, and, quote, having to pick up arms against a fellow American, unquote. Cawthorn, the 26-year-old Trump ally and the youngest member of Congress, spoke at the Stop the Steal rally preceding the January 6th Capitol riot, and this week he called insurrectionists who've been arrested political prisoners, saying anybody tells you that Joe Biden was dutifully elected is lying. We have plans in motion for another Washington rally. Well, they did have another Washington rally in support of the insurrectionists. It did not generate a whole lot of heat. Maybe because Donald Trump wasn't there on the White House ellipse leading people to march down Pennsylvania Avenue. And yes, we've been skeptical that any good is going to come of of an investigation of what took place, at least an official investigation. But we would note that the House committee investigating the January 6th Capitol riots took steps a couple weeks back to obtain the phone records of Republican members of Congress, also former President Trump and Trump's three eldest children during the days surrounding the insurrection. The committee asked 35 telecommunications and social media companies such as Verizon, AT&T, Google, and Facebook to preserve records, 
including location data for calls from GOP representatives Lauren Boebert of Colorado, Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina, and Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, among others, according to CNN. The committee also sought records for representatives Jim Jordan of Ohio and Matt Gates of Florida, who Political.com reported this last a couple weeks back, called Trump during the riot, pleading with him to tell his supporters to stand down. Not that there's any threat in, in what follows, but House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy warned that these firms could lose, quote, their ability to operate, unquote, in the U.S. when Republicans regain control of Congress. Doesn't that sound like obstruction of justice to you? I mean, it does to Radio Parallax. But I have to pause a moment in, in taking a look at what, what's for me right now that I want to discuss. In the Wikipedia entry that I printed up for the Heritage Foundation, people love to put the tinfoil hat on anybody who says there's some, you know, untoward activity going on out there. They call him a conspiracy theorist and say, well, he's obviously nuts. But would it be nuts, for example, to look at, say, the Heritage Foundation and note that this cabal, which was assembled back in 1973 by Paul Weyrich, Edwin Fulner, and Joseph Coors, yes, of Coors Brewing, to fund, to lavishly fund a foundation whose mission it would be to restore conservative values to their primacy in American life. Not that they were ever in danger of going away. Noted Wikipedia, not exactly a a left-wing source, Heritage advocated for pro-business policies, anti-communism, and neoconservatism in its early years, but distinguished itself from the conservative American Enterprise Institute by also advocating for the Christian right. We would also know that the Heritage Foundation had a major influence in the Donald Trump presidential transition and administration. In 2021, after Trump lost his re-election, in 2021, in the wake of Trump's losing the election, the Heritage Foundation hired Chad Wolf, Ken Cuccinelli, and Mark Morgan, all three of whom played a prominent role in the immigration policies of the Trump administration, and also hired former Vice President Mike Pence. Shortly thereafter, Pence published an op-ed on the Heritage Foundation website, which makes false claims of fraud in the 2020 election, as well as numerous false claims about the For the People's Act, a democratic bill to expand voting rights. So yes, is our constitutional crisis already here? We might be inclined to agree with Robert Kagan that it sure looks that way. Notes Kagan, the amateurish Stop the Steal efforts of 2020 have given way to an organized national campaign to ensure that Trump and his supporters will have the control over state and local election officials that they lacked in 2020. Those recalcitrant Republican state officials who effectively saved the country from calamity by refusing to falsely declare fraud or, quote, find, unquote, more votes for Trump, are being systematically removed or hounded from office. Republican legislatures are giving themselves greater control over the election certification process. As of this spring, Republicans have proposed or passed measures in at least 16 states that would shift certain election authorities from the governor, secretary of state, or other executive branch officers to the legislature. An Arizona bill flatly states the legislature may, quote, revoke the Secretary of State's issuance of certification of a presidential elector's certification of election by a simple majority vote. Some legislatures seek to impose criminal penalties on local election officials alleged to have committed, quote, technical infractions, unquote, including obstructing the view of poll watchers. Yes, folks, 
We're living in a country now where state legislatures, like in Georgia, are passing laws making it illegal to give water to someone waiting in line to vote. And if you think that's an issue, well, you've ever really been to Georgia on a hot day, we refer you back to the documentary channels How Ohio Pulled It Off to show how it was that if you were black and you wanted to vote in Ohio in 2004, well, you might just have to wait in line eight hours. I mean, no joke. You might have to wait in line eight hours because wouldn't you know it, all the voting machines in those precincts just somehow went offline. Robert Kagan says the stage is being set for chaos. Imagine weeks of competing mass protests across multiple states as lawmakers from both parties claim victory and charge the other with unconstitutional efforts to take power. Partisans on both sides are likely to be better armed and more willing to inflict harm as they were in 2020. Would governors call out the National Guard? Would President Biden nationalize the Guard and place it under his control, invoke the Insurrection Act, and send troops into Pennsylvania or Texas or Wisconsin to quell violent protests? Good question. Notes Kagan, most Americans and all but a handful of politicians have refused to take this possibility seriously enough to try to prevent it. Kagan notes later in the piece, the events of January 6th proved that Trump and his most diehard supporters are prepared to defy constitutional and democratic norms, just as revolutionary movements have in the past. While it might be shocking to learn that normal, decent Americans can support a violent assault on the Capitol, it shows that America as a people are not as exceptional as their founding principles and institutions. Europeans who joined fascist movements in the 1920s and 30s were from the middle class. No doubt many of them were good parents and neighbors. People do things as part of a mass movement they would not do as individuals, especially if they're convinced that others are out to destroy their way of life. And I have to pause for a moment and um, be horrified and realize that this reminds me of, of some things that were said in years past about getting people to join mass movements. Apparently, Reich Marshal Hermann Goering at the Nuremberg trial was asked how it was that the Nazis were able to mobilize the public on their suicidal mission to take over the world. Said Goering, naturally the common people don't want war, but after all, it is the leaders of the country who determine the policy, and it is always a simple matter to drag people along. Voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. This is easy. All you have to do is tell them they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and for exposing the country to danger. It works the same in every country. Is that being a little overheated, what we're looking at right now? Well, I hope so. I mean, I really do. But Robert Kagan notes, it would be foolish to imagine that the violence of January 6th was an aberration that will not be repeated. Because Trump supporters see those events as a patriotic defense of the nation. There's every reason to expect more such episodes. Trump has returned the explosive rhetoric of that day, insisting that he won in a landslide, and that the radical left Democratic Communist Party, let me repeat that, the radical left Democrat Communist Party, stole the presidency in the most corrupt, dishonest, and unfair election in the history of our country and they have to get it back. Trump has targeted for defeat those Republicans who voted for his impeachment or criticized him for his role in the riot. Already there have been threats to bomb polling sites, kidnap officials, and attack state capitals. The wife of Georgia's top election official was said, you and your family will be killed very slowly in a text. 
I think they're referring to Raffensperger in, in this. And and boy, the fact that he stood up to Trump and refused to come up with 11,000 phony votes is to his credit. But Greg Palast notes, noted in our discussion with him, that Raffensperger had done everything possible to purge hundreds of thousands of people from the voter rolls, which he wound up suing to get put back on. Palace suit, I mean, and with, with some success. Notes Kagan, where does the Republican Party stand in all this? The party that gave birth and nurtured this movement bears full responsibility for establishing the conditions in which Trump could capture the loyalty of 90% of Republican voters. Republican leaders are more than happy to ride Trump's coattails if it means getting paid off with hundreds of conservative court appointments, including three Supreme Court justices, tax cuts, immigration restrictions, and deep reductions in regulations on business. And to pause right there also and note that since we spoke to you last, my dear listener, we had to go through another raising of the debt limit in this country to prevent the federal government from seizing up. Now, the fact is, people generally don't like paying taxes. I don't. But we're living in a country that seems to think that, you know, corporations in particular shouldn't have to pay a whole lot of taxes. Even The Economist weighed in on this several months back, demanding that there be an end to the contortions and corporate tax dodging that goes on around the world. Said The Economist, a conservative business-oriented magazine, corporate tax gymnastics have reached Olympic gold medal levels and it's time for new rules. They noted that the share of American multinationals' foreign profits booked in tax havens, booked in tax havens, yeah, that's where we generate the money, has doubled since 2000. It's at 63% as of 2018. The Economist estimated that they had only 5% of their staff in those places and noted that they booked more profits in Bermuda than in China. Adding that taxpayers in America or France are right to feel aggrieved when the income a tech firm generates is magically alleged to be in Ireland or a shell company in the Caribbean. It it seems clear that there's a lot of tax avoidance going on, and because the tax revenues are not coming to the national treasury, well, no one's shown an ability to cut spending. So we keep doing the spending because people like to get checks paid to them when you make, you know, bombers and whatever. So you don't cut the spending, but you keep the tax revenues down. Well, how are you going to pay the bills? You borrow the money. In my youth, I noted the Republican Party was, uh, was angry about this. They claimed it was the Democrats who were the tax and spend liberals who wanted to, you know, bankrupt the country. And they kept saying stuff like that right up to the time Ronald Reagan became president of the United States. Reagan said he wanted to build up the American military which he did. He wanted to cut taxes, which he did. And he wanted to balance the budget, which he did not. I remember reading in 1982 or so, and I've told this story, I don't know how many times in the show, but I guess I'm going to tell it one more time when I showed up to take a look at the front page of the Los Angeles Times. I was living in Southern California, going to medical school, and the front page of the Times noted that Ronald Reagan's Office of Management and Budget Head, the OMB head, David Stockman, noted that, well, doggone it, it looks as though we're going to have to borrow about $200 billion next year, which was triple the previous record of any administration. And wouldn't you know it, they wound up doing that again and again during the Reagan presidency to run up budget deficits that prior to that were just simply unheard of. 
I don't know where we stand right now. It's something like, I don't know, $1.27 trillion. It's more money than the U.S. economy generates. And people I talk to in finance say, well, that, that's just not good. That's just not, not something that we can sustain. But yet when the Biden administration wants to spend a lot of money for infrastructure improvement, which is, you know, kind of a, I don't know, kind of a crazy idea. Why, why should we spend money in the United States to improve roads and bridges when we could spend vast sums on what we've been spending it on? Bombs, wars in third world countries, quote, nation building, unquote. We saw how well that worked in Afghanistan, didn't we? You know, going back to that show I was listening to on, on 9-11, I think it was Reveal. It was fantastic. They were interviewing people from Afghanistan describing what it was actually like over there. And they went into some detail of how it was. Various warlords were made governors of provinces, as long as they paid lip service to what America wanted them to pay lip service to. Vast sums were given to them to improve the, uh, the quality of life in their provinces, and I think most of it wound up in Swiss bank accounts. They admitted that a lot of people were put in charge of, of things like uh, police forces in Afghanistan. By the way, I don't know how many times in the last 15 years we've been asking on this program what in the hell we were supposedly doing in Afghanistan. We were given answers like, well, we're, we're trying to train their police forces to be in better shape. It's what you do when you're nation building, right? Well, they admitted that a lot of these guys that were put in charge of military forces in Afghanistan and police forces were people from the village who, well, well, doggone it, they were illiterate. Now, they had to make up reports, you know, so that you could, like, disperse salaries to various people. They had no idea how to do stuff like that. So the idea that there really was a military force in Afghanistan, kind of a joke. And yes, when the heads of government fled the country (laughs) shortly before there was a complete collapse, well... That, that wasn't good. But as we talked about on this program, and I think it was our last show or maybe the show before that, turns out the Trump administration had cut a deal with the Taliban that excluded the so-called government of Afghanistan, which we'd been supporting. We cut a deal with the Taliban. We told them we'd be out at a certain time. This is not something that I'm not a military strategist, but I know that's, that's not a smart thing to do. Yes, as long as they didn't attack us, we were okay with everything. Anyway, this has been this has been quite a show. We're just you know I, I don't know it, it needs to be talked about, so we're talking about it. I cannot resist also quoting from Politico.com article by Zach Stanton titled "What If 2020 Was Just a Rehearsal." In this piece, Stanton refers to the article in the Washington Post we were just quoting from by Robert Kagan. It's more of an editorial than an actual article, but Zach Stanton says based on his conversation with Rick Hansen, one of the nation's foremost experts on laws that hold together our democracy, Hansen was confident that if the same state and local officials were in place in 2024 as in 2020, many of them Republican, they would be able to stand up to Trump's pressure to disregard the vote count and declare him the winner. But he isn't at all confident they will remain in place. Many election officials are fleeing, and he says they're being replaced by people who do not have allegiance to the integrity of the process. Stanton notes we got a taste of that this last week when Texas announced an audit of the 2020 election in four counties, which came just eight and a half hours after Trump publicly called for one despite no serious evidence of problems. I'm going to stop at this point with a couple minutes to go and note that, dear listener, I I hope very much you will look into some of what we're talking about. We would note that uh, apathy might be public enemy number one when it comes to this stuff. 
Schmerlin points out it may be time to bring uh, Stephen J. Harper back on the program. He was talking about this stuff with us um, late last year, earlier this year, and, well, we should update things. I also want to talk on this program about um, the threat from the illiberal left and how this may send us down some blind alleys we, we would be best not to traipse through. And have a word or two say about how General Mark Miley, who we thought we thought at the end of last year might save the country from chaos, and it well, it turns out he did. And yet he is under attack from the right wing right now for supposedly uh, a treasonous activity. He would hasten to point out that his allegiance was never sworn to Donald Trump. It was to the United States and its best interests. Remember when Trump was asked what charges should be brought against Obama for his wacky allegations that Obama was uh, spying on him and his campaign, and he answered treason? No, political spying on a, on a campaign of an opponent is, does not constitute treason. I mean, uh, I'm pretty sure that I don't have to ask Stephen J. Harper about that one. I'm pretty sure I got that one dialed in. Now, trying to cut a deal with, like, the president of, say, Ukraine, that, that might qualify. Anyway, in the minute or so we have left on this show, we want to do an obituary. One that reminds us of that famous quote from Mark Twain that he never killed a man, but he did read some obituaries with pleasure. In this case, the pleasurable obituary would have to be ascribed to that of Abimael Guzman. He died in prison in Peru a couple of weeks ago. Note of The Economist, for a dozen years from 1980 on, a malign, invisible presence haunted Peru, acquiring ever greater menace. Marxist philosopher Abimael Guzman, who created a shadowy terrorist army called the Sendero Luminoso, which is Shining Path in English, ordered massacres, murders, car bombs, and the destruction of police stations. He was captured in 1992 and spent the rest of his life in a maximum security prison. Traveling in Peru in 1998, I had to radically change my uh, plans for mobility in the country thanks to the blowing up of bridges by the Sendero Luminoso. The majority of his victims were Quechua-speaking villagers in the Andes, those in whose name his war was supposedly being fought. The magazine notes that Guzman lived in an absolutist ideological bubble, immune from reality, which included the cruelty and suffering that he was ordering. He reportedly killed 38,000 people. That was according to an investigation by the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. Well, but his actions probably accounted for another 30,000 killings by the armed forces and self-defense militia and self-defense mili- and self-defense militias that went at it he erected a preposterous personality cult around himself styled himself as president gonzalo the fourth sword of marxism sendero's ideology became marxism slash leninism slash maoism slash slash gonzalo thought at any rate he has now left us, and the Peruvian government is determined to have him cremated and have his ashes scattered where no one will ever know. There's been some concern that if he was buried in the ground somewhere as he wished, his tomb would become a place of veneration by the followers that still exist in Peru. I do note in the piece written about him in The Economist that they said his techniques foreshadowed those of jihadist terrorism, but Guzman ran no physical risks himself. He was no Che Guevara. Throughout the war, he lived in safe houses in the posher neighborhoods of Lima. When the police burst in, he offered no resistance, but immediately called upon his followers to give up, turning Sendero into a nonviolent political movement called Movadef, whose purpose was to campaign for his release, oddly enough. 
Yes, Mr. Marilyn speculates on where Mr. Guzman is currently located. This has been Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. This program was produced by Mr. Edward McMillan, who vehemently denies having given Novak Djokovic advice on his last tennis match.